Morning, everybody. What a joy to be with you. The uh, superhero Daredevil has one of the most fascinating origin stories. Um, Orphaned and then blinded by a chemical spill as a child, uh, young Matt Murdock is is left absolutely overwhelmed. He's just... His other senses are heightened to an amazing degree. Uh, he's blind. He's, he's got this amazing capacity to actually see through a kind of radar superpower that he has, but he can't really use it because he's so overstimulated and blind, which is actually an excellent description of the U.S. economy right now, overstimulated and blind. Anyway, um, be that as it may, <clears throat> young Matt Murdock is adopted uh, adopted by a guy named Stick. Uh, Stick is also blind, but he's learned to flourish in life, and, and he, he brings Matt in and he raises him. In fact, Stick will later give his life in the Daredevil story to save Matt Murdock. But before that, Stick trains Murdock. And through that training, Matt Murdock rises up and learns to use that superpower gift for good. He becomes the daredevil. Now, it's a two-step process whereby frightened little Matt becomes the the no-fear-at-all daredevil. Um, Number one, he learns to silence fear. The world's an evil and terrifying place, but Murdock learns to discipline that fear. Secondly, he takes action. Daredevil takes steps against, against both his own fears and against the forces of evil. Now, the Daredevil stories, if any of you have seen them, they contain lots of biblical and ecclesiastical references, so it's, it's probably no surprise that those two steps are very similar to the ones that God details for Christians. Christians have got to go through a very similar transition. Read with me, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, altogether, Ephesians 2, 3, we were by nature children under wrath. Every son of Adam and daughter of Eve is born into wrath, darkness, sin. That is our nature. By nature, we are spiritually orphaned, blind, and lost. But, wonderfully, we who trust Jesus are rescued by God's gracious sacrifice. He saves us out of that old hell's kitchen life, and we are adopted into God's family. Read the next two verses with me. Verse 3 said, we were by nature children under wrath. Verse 4, altogether. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ. Even though we were dead in trespasses, you are saved by grace. Amen. Jesus the Christ became a limited human in order to reach us. He, fully God and fully human, gave his life to rescue us. And when we trust him, Jesus raises us through his resurrection. Further, Jesus trains us. Jesus understands our fears as humans, and he puts us on a development path where we learn every day to move from fearful whimperers into undaunted daredevils. Of course, there are significant differences between us and Matt Murdock. We're real, first of all. We're not comic book characters. Secondly, our Savior, our trainer, does more than just die for us. Stick died for Murdoch, but Jesus conquers death for us. And thirdly, and I think this may be the most significant, we don't learn to stand strong because of our own power. We learn to harness the power that is graciously bestowed on us by God himself. And that's what we learn through Timothy, who is even cooler than Daredevil. Um, open your Bible to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy in your New Testament. Amazingly, you'll find it right after 1 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 1, and let's read the first nine verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, for the sake of the promise of life in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dearly loved son, 
grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve with a clear conscience, as my ancestors did, when I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day. Remembering your tears, I long to see you, so that I may be filled with joy. I recall your sincere faith that first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now, I'm convinced, is in you also. Therefore, I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but one of power, love, and sound judgment. So, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Instead, share in suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God. He has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. That, my friends, is part of Timothy's origin story. There are a few really important points to catch, so there's a space there in your bulletin notes. Um, If you're with us online, we are so delighted to worship with you. You should have a link from your host, and you can get the notes there. First thing to note is Timothy was a Jew. When we first meet him, Timothy is a young man in Asia Minor, a Jewish boy who has just come to faith in Jesus, Acts 16. Paul went on to Derby and Lystra. Here's Derby. Here's Lystra, Iconium's right there. These are the towns that he went to on his first missionary journey. Now he's going back, second journey. Paul went on to Derby and Lystra where there was a disciple named Timothy, the son of a believing Jewish woman, but his father was a Greek. The brothers and sisters at Lystra and Iconium spoke highly of him. Uh, We'll stop there. Timothy is a respected young fellow, but please don't misunderstand. He it doesn't mean he had it easy. If, if you look at that verse and understand it in its historical context, there's real trauma implied in, in that and in the, in the second Timothy verse because of the absence of his father. Look, notice, his mother and his grandmother are both Messianic Christians, right? But dad's gone. Now, we can't know for certain that Timothy's father has split, but it's very likely. Look, for a Jew like Paul, Writing to a Jewish boy, mentioning the mother only and not the father is scandalous. A Hebrew never, never referred to someone by female family alone unless the father was absolutely not involved. In fact, Timothy's Gentile father is so unengaged. How unengaged is he? Thank you. He's so, yeah, thank you. He's so unengaged that he neglects the most basic aspect of Timothy's heritage, which is his circumcision. Look, uh, Acts 16 goes on the next verse. Paul wanted Timothy to go with him, so he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, since they all knew that his father was a Greek. Uh, Paul has to see to his circumcision so that Timothy will keep the gospel door open for Jews. Timothy does not have to be circumcised. Look, The book of Acts resoundingly declares that Christians need nothing but faith in Messiah Jesus. But as a Jew, Tim was going to be shunned by other Jews if he weren't first circumcised. And so Paul fulfills the missing father role in Timothy's life. That's why we read notes um, all the time about Paul referencing Timothy. Notes like this, uh, 1 Corinthians 4. This is why I've sent Timothy to you. He is my dearly loved and faithful, what everybody? Child in the Lord. He'll remind you about my ways in Christ Jesus, just as I teach everywhere in every church. First Timothy chapter 1. To Timothy, my true what, everyone? Son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Timothy had a strange childhood. He was surely isolated by his father's choices. But under Paul's tutelage, Timothy becomes a powerful force. He, do you know what he did? He ended up writing letters with the Apostle Paul. Timothy established churches. He was a pastor, and he spread courage in the face of persecution. Let me, let me show you one example. Um, the church at Thessalonica was severely persecuted. Uh, how, pers- 
How persecuted were they? Thank you for asking. They were so, did you know this? They're so persecuted, Paul actually had to flee that place. He had to flee Thessalonica. And later, Paul sends Timothy right back into that hell's kitchen. And he asks his protege to encourage the church there and bring him news. And, and here's the result, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. But now, Paul says, Timothy has come to us from you and brought good news about your faith and love. He reported that you always have good memories of us and you long to see us as we also long to see you. Timothy brings news of the Thessalonian Christians' faith and love, not their fear. Their trust and their self-sacrificial love, agape. Timothy, who had every... I can't resist. He had every reason to be intimidated, right? Um, the Thessalonian Christians... I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm here all week. Um, the Thessalonian Christians who were literally being hunted for their faith. We expect... This is supposed to shock us. We expect to read, I've heard about your fear. I've heard about your what, everybody? Faith and love. That is absolutely astonishing. These people become known for faith and love. So what about us? I don't know all your origin stories, but if you're a believer in Jesus, I know what your story can become. I know the supernatural blessing of God that can make you stand strong even during the worst storms, just as Timothy did, just as our brethren have done in Afghanistan. A few days ago, I got another email from a missionary who had escaped Afghanistan, and he wrote and said this, the Taliban soldiers crashed into the Friday night fellowship. That's their code for their church service. Most of those brethren are now in heaven. You should know that they stood strong rejoicing as they were martyred. That kind of response takes training, just as it did for Timothy. Do, do you want to grow up strong like that? Do you want to live in strength instead of being tossed about by fears? Let me just say, yes or no? Do you want to grow up strong? Yes or no? All right. If so, then focus in, zero in on 2 Timothy 1.7. 2 Timothy 1.7. I want us to read it again, this time from the New American Standard. It uses slightly different English words. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. This verse is the superpower action plan. No timidity. That's the first thing. No timidity. Numa delia is the Greek that we translate spirit of timidity. It's your fancy words for the day. Boys and girls, numa means spirit. On the count of three, say numa. Delia means cowardly or weak. Say delia on the count of three. One, two, three. This is a phrase that's used not all that often in Greek literature. My favorite example I could find of it was a Greek poet who's describing a day when he was trying to sail and there wasn't any wind or just little wind. He called it numa delia. Just cowardly little wind. It wouldn't give him any wind. When the Old Testament was translated into Greek, the 70 scholars who did that, they used pneuma delia for this passage, uh, Leviticus 26. Uh, God speaking. I will put anxiety, what's the word they translate in Greek there? Delia, in the hearts, pneuma. So what does that look like? What does pneuma delia look like? This is awesome. God says, the sound of a wind-driven leaf will put them to flight. And they will flee as one flees from a sword and fall, though no one is pursuing them. That is pneuma delia. That is the spirit of timidity. My study partner, Martin McDonald, sent me an absolutely brilliant note on this. Martin wrote me and he said, Wayne, since you're teaching on moving past timidity, I looked up the synonyms and the antonyms for fear. Here's what I found in my thesaurus. Synonyms for fear, alarm, anxiety, dread, fearfulness, fright, horror, panic, scare, terror, trepidation, related words, cowardice, discomposure, phobia, timidity. 
antonyms for fear, assurance, calmness, cheer, confidence, contentment, ease, faith, happiness, joy, trust, comfort, love, bravery, courage, and fearlessness. He goes on, it is only when the Lord takes us past our blindness that we understand. He is in complete control, which allows us to live confidently in the fear antonyms column. Sadly, Martin writes, much of the time we exhibit the traits in the synonyms column. I know, it's very sad. Well said. Just like Daredevil, just like Timothy, we have to learn to silence fear and take action in confidence. I want you to look at the, at the front of your bulletin or at the slide. Look at the graphic that, that our, um, our designer, Jose Portillo, developed for this, for this series. Look at this person. This person is headed forward. You see that? Focused on the light. What, what I like the most about this is he made sure <clears throat> that this person is not just hunkered down weathering the storm. He is confident. Do you see that? He looks like he is about to step out on the water. Isn't that cool? And, there, and notice there's a calm here. There's a calm in the middle of this huge storm. There's a, spirit, there's a spirit of adventure here. And there should be in our lives as well. No timidity. On the 11th of September, 2001, Todd Bieber found himself on a hijacked airplane. Terrorists were attempting to crash his flight, United 93, into the U.S. Capitol. Uh, 20 years later... A really talented writer named, uh, writer named Mene Ukubira wrote a tribute in the Wall Street Journal. I want to read this to you. Uh, Ukubira writes, Beamer remained poised under extreme pressure. Many passengers made phone calls during that flight, but Beamer's call with airphone operator Lisa Jefferson became the fullest account of what took place in the air that day. He remained on the line for 14 minutes describing the direction of the plane, the hijacker's behavior, and eventually the passenger's decision to revolt. His voice was devoid of any stress, Ms. Jefferson later said. In fact, he sounded so tranquil it made me begin to doubt the authenticity and urgency of the call. It's fortunate that Beamer and the three other passengers who spearheaded that revolt, Jeremy Glick, Mark Bingham, and Tom Burnett, were confident athletes. The hijackers pitched that plane back and forth sharply in a failed attempt to shake their attackers off their feet. The cockpit recording filled with slams, shattering plates, and howls revealed the terrorists took that plane down only after six minutes of sustained assault by the passengers. A strong Christian faith carried Beamer toward his fate. His wife Lisa recounts their life together was founded on a faith at Wheaton College where they met while rearing children, teaching Sunday school at Princeton Alliance Church. Before ending his call with Miss Jefferson, Beamer asked, would you do one last thing for me? Yes, what is it? Would you pray with me? They said the Lord's Prayer together in full. And other passengers joined in. Beamer then recited Psalm 23, concluding, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Immediately after, he turned to his co-conspirators and asked, Are you guys ready? Okay, let's roll. Close quote. Mr. Beamer was able to use God's power because through, through prayer and scripture, you know what Todd did? He got rid of timidity. No timidity. The next aspect of our action plan is power. Dunamis is the Greek term. Now, when you see that Greek word, you tend in English to think of our word dynamic, which comes from it, but it's really very different. Aristotle loved this word dunamis. He used it often. He said it was one of the most important concepts in life. Dunamis is power, especially moral, spiritual, or intellectual power. Now, this is so awesome. Look what Jesus did. Jesus took that idea of Aristotle's and he filled it out. Um, Jesus referred to, for the first time, dunamis otheo, 
the power of God. Mark chapter 12. The Sadducees ask a really, really dumb question. And Jesus responds with one of his great sarcastic replies. I mean, really sarcastic. Look what he says. Jesus spoke to them, isn't this the reason that you're mistaken? And you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. Dunamis Oh, oh. Uh, Walter Grundman uh, is a, a commentator, a Bible scholar, and he said this about what Jesus did there. Look, in the message of Christ, we thus have the power of God, which is the power of salvation. God delivers man from the power of darkness and translates him into the kingdom of his dear son. In this context, dunamis theo is the power of God, takes Aristotle and makes it the power of God which is at work in history, specifically in the Christian. And here's the big difference again between comic books and real life. The power does not come from us. It is the power of whom, everybody? Of God. You're still open to 2 Timothy 1, right? All right, read verses 8 through 9 again, 8 and 9 again. So don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Instead, share in suffering for the gospel relying on, and here he writes, dunamis theo, what is it in English, everybody? The power of God. He has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. When one faces hardship, where does the power come from? The power to resist evil, the power to stand for right, the power to confess sin honestly. It comes from God. Dunamis otha'o. I was reading a, a book, really great book, History of the Venetian Empire, called uh, City of Fortune. Um, I, uh, I, I bought, okay, I buy almost all my books used. When I see a book that looks really great and I want to get it, I'm a cheapskate, so I wait until a couple of years later and then I get it at uh, a used bookstore. So uh, I was reading this book and I was thinking for about the 40th time what an absolutely amazing writer Roger Crowley is. He just, he just writes so well. And I was thinking that when suddenly I read something better than Roger Crowley. There was this note stuck in my used book that I bought. It's a, it's a note from some lady named Christina, and she's writing to her friend Amy. And she says, Amy, I thought of you when I read this one. Okay, full disclosure. At that point, this is awful, but at that point, here's immediately what I thought. I pictured the author, Roger Crowley, reading this note and saying, what in the world would make you a history of Venice cause you to think of a specific person? Is Amy a hard-nosed business person? Is she an enemy of the Reformation? Did Amy once attack Constantinople? What made you think of her? That's what was in my head. I quickly put that aside, and I went on with the note. She says, Amy, I thought of you and I read this one. I know you've been on a rough journey the past few months, and I'm so proud of the work you're doing. You are tough because you, and the underlines are hers, trust God. I'm proud of how brave you've been. You're an amazing mom, wife, teacher, and friend. Keep trusting God that he will take care of it all. When you have a negative thought, worry, or concern, ask him to take it on, close quote. Well done, Christina, whoever you are. And way to go, Amy. Along with the angels and uh, on all of us, I think the Apostle Paul would applaud you because that is exactly what he means when he says we are to rely on the power of God of God. Our power is super because it has nothing to do with our works. It is dunamis theos. Amen? Now, back to verse 7 of our superpower action plan. Superpower action plan. No timidity, power, and love. Agape is the Greek term. It's one of four words they use for love. It tells us a great deal, but not today. 
That's all we can say about it today because we're going to cover that in depth next time. So just hold your horses. Uh, As we headline on the right side of our notes, the last part of our plan is discipline. Now we're going to get to this one more in depth as well. But it seems, it seems wise to clear a little un- underbrush right now about discipline. The translations diverge very widely. In fact, with different Bibles, you probably read different words for that last term. The, the Greek so- sophronosmos is really tricky, but it's really significant for our training. Sophronosmos, um, it's one of those rare words that doesn't gain meaning through time. That's very strange. But the reason is, Sophronus Most had so much meaning in the beginning when, when it was first coined way back in the archaic period of Greek history. Um, it meant altogether, and this is very rare as well, it meant rational, undeceived, purposeful, prudent, correct, and disciplined. And it didn't really change over time. That's very rare. Um, most words morph. Let me show you one in our language that, that is similar to Sophronismos. Um, there was an old, old Proto-Germanic word made up 2,000 years ago by barbarian Germanic tribes in the Teutonic forests, and the word they made up was stragaz. Stragaz meant, and it was a strange word because it meant all these things together. It meant resolute, brave, disciplined, and powerful. And here's what's fascinating. It didn't change over time. In fact, it came wholesale into the other languages that came from Old German. So uh, Old Dutch has streng, uh, which is rigorous or disciplined. Old Norse had stronger, which, which means strong. Uh, Old English had what? Strong, which went to Middle English as what? And into Modern English as It it didn't change. And what's funny is when you and I use strong to this day, embedded in the thought is more than just physical. We we use it and mean it as as resolute, brave, disciplined, powerful. It's it's all those things. So fronismos is is like strangas. It carries with it all the meanings that were first embedded in the thought, which makes it really hard to translate in one word. In fact, there's a German scholar, um, Ulrich Luck, who says that it's, it's impossible to make sophronismos fit into any one word in any other language. Look what he said. It should be noted that with this word sophronismos, which is so characteristic of Greek thought, simple translation is almost impossible. Lexicographically, it fully denotes what that means uh, is that it, it means... I know. It means all these things together at once, okay? Lexicographically, it it fully denotes one who is rational, undeceived, purposeful, prudent, correct, and disciplined. My dear fellow Germanic barbarians, that's what God wants to impart to us. He gives us a spirit of power and love and sophronosmos. This is the great prayer of our elders for this next year, that you and I become more deeply rational, undeceived, purposeful, prudent, correct, and disciplined. Will you join me in a prayer for that? We've got more to do, but I just want to, let's stop and pray. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for myself, as I know my brethren are praying for themselves, that you will take this year and you will make me more rational and undeceived, purposeful, prudent, correct, and disciplined. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's one reason we needed to stop and pray about that. For Christians today, this gets really convicting. You see, the spirit of fear is very powerful in our age. I'm not referring to prudence or caution. Prudence can be part of wisdom. I mean these things. Alarm, anxiety, dread, fearfulness, fright, horror, panic, scare, terror, trepidation, and so on. Fear is so, fear is so pervasive. How pervasive. Thank you for asking. Fear is so pervasive that this is what I wrote to our pulpit team months ago. When I first put this together, I wrote them this. I said, under the spirit of fear, 
I'll just use whatever examples are dominating headlines in September. It won't be hard to illustrate. Layson Ward of our team wrote back, I think the best response I got. She said, take your pick. Fear of the virus, fear of the vaccination, fear of loss, fear of heartbreak, fear of election outcomes, fear of Biden, fear of a Trump comeback, fear of state control, fear of violence, fear of economic downturn, fear of China, and surely others that I am forgetting. Close quote. Thank goodness those are only for other people, right? I mean, we only have healthy concerns. That you and I, we never, we're not like other people, we never give into a spirit of timidity, right? Well, then you won't mind taking the little assessment then that's in your notes. Look at the assessment in your notes there, if you would. Let me ask you these questions. I want you to just, just yes or no, true or false for every one of these. Number one, I have shied away from accountable confrontation. Don't worry about the scripture on there yet. We'll get to that. Um, whether, whether it's that, that you were receiving confrontation or you needed to confront someone else, you've shied away from that. Yes or no, I do not meditate on scripture regularly. I sometimes focus more on obstacles than solutions. True or false? I possibly hold little bitterness. I sometimes think it's better to not have, and you can insert here, your annual checkup, your colonoscopy, your, uh, your mammogram, your dental care, or whatever, because that way they can't find anything wrong. Yes, sir. I know it's a bad idea, right? I have lied. Oh, this one hurts. I have lied to preserve or to serve myself. I sometimes fear the people in power, human beings, people. I fear them. I have boasted or exaggerated. I sometimes lie awake with worry. I am sometimes silent about Jesus. Implication there are times when I shouldn't be. I have shared frightening information on social media. I want you to raise your hand. Be honest. Let's at least overcome timidity in this second. Honestly raise your hand if you answered yes to any of those questions. Raise your hand if you answered yes to any. All right. Thank you. I don't have time to go through all the scriptures listed there. I put them in your notes so that you can read them at home. What you're going to find is the Bible exposes every one of these fears as the opposite of relying on the Lord. And thus you and I have just confessed that it's not just other people who have fear. So let's get to work replacing our timidity with power. Turn over in your Bible to Acts chapter 4, and let's learn from some intrepid apostles. Acts chapter 4, go back to the west in your Bible, go back past uh, Romans to Acts, don't go all the way to John, it's right out. Acts chapter 4, verse 1. While they were speaking, it's the apostles Peter and John who are speaking to the people. Let me explain. No, take too long. Let me sum up. About 100 yards from here is a place called the Pools of Bethesda. In the Old Testament, it's called the Sheep Gate. In the New Testament, it's called Pools of Bethesda. It changed over time. And there, uh, John and, and Peter have just, uh, God has used them to do this amazing uh, miracle, this healing. This guy's been, been saved. The people are all wowed about it. So they go up in this place called the Portico of Solomon, uh, which is up on the Temple Mount, and they're teaching. All right. Now, while they were speaking to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple police, and the Sadducees confronted them because they were annoyed that they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So they seized them and took them into custody until the next day, since it was already evening. The apostles are in this place, uh, marble, beautiful courtyard that was known as the Portico of Solomon. Here's what you need to know about this place. So many different ideologies were shared in that big place. Folks, Everything was taught there. Every nutty theory about life and scripture had proponents. Of, you, you ready for this? 
pagan, um, pagan pronouncements were made in the portico of Solomon up on the Temple Mount. Everything, it was free game there unless, and this is indicative, you talk about Jesus. Opposition only comes against the name of Jesus. Has anything changed? No. Walt Tutka was a long-term and long-time substitute teacher. Uh, after class one day, a student asked Mr. Tutka uh, where a famous quote from the Bible could be found. And uh, Walt pulled out his Bible and he showed the student, uh, there's three different places where that's found, Jesus' statement, by the way. The one the kid wanted was, many that are first shall be last and the last shall be first. Uh, he said, here, here's where you can find it so you can look this up when you go home. He said, I don't have a Bible at home. We don't have one. He said, well, here, take mine. Tutka was immediately suspended and later the school board met and fired him. It didn't happen to teachers of other religions, folks. When atheist, Muslim, Hindu, even Satanist information is shared by a teacher in response to a student question, free speech protects that teacher, unless you're talking about Jesus. By the way, First Liberty did win the lawsuit. Uh, Walt was reinstated as a teacher, but it took three years and a lot of determined attorneys to get it done. Again, I think Layson had the best comment from our team. She wrote me and said, opposition comes against Jesus because he's the most offensive. Christianity is the only religion that tells people they aren't inherently good and cannot earn their way to God or salvation, close quote. Remember our term, Sophronismos? It doesn't just mean discipline. It means undeceived. This is our first step in overcoming our timidity with power. Don't be naive. No opposition is coming. Now, read verse 4. <clears throat> but many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of the men, this is just counting the men, came to be about 5,000. The opposition cannot stop the message. Muslim countries right now are exploding with new Christians. It's been this way through the whole 21st century. Same things happening in China despite intense persecution. The opposition cannot stop the message. On U.S. college campuses right now, you know what we're seeing? We're seeing a whole new wave of people coming to faith in Jesus. And this is just my theory, but I have some reasons for it. I think the main reason is it's rebellious. They have been so much told by their culture that Jesus is forbidden that they're like, well, I want to check that out. Um, it's wild. Okay, back, back to our history. Verse 5. The next day, their rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, that's the former high priest, John, Alexander, all the members of the high priestly family. After they had Peter and John stand before them, they began to question them, by what power and what name have you done this? Talking about healing the guy. Then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and said to them, rulers of the people and elders... If we're being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man, by what means he was healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing here before you healthy. This Jesus, and here he quotes Psalm 118, the stone, he is the stone rejected by you builders which has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. Peter keeps the main thing in focus. This is a brilliant speech, and it's one of the most exceptional lessons, I think, in all the first half of the book of Acts. With all these distractions, all this intimidation, Peter keeps the focus where it belongs, on the person and works of Jesus. We do not seem to excel at this today. I know of fellowships. I know of multiple fellowships that have shattered over differing levels of concern about the flu. This is absurd. 
This is, we have let a temporal disease become more significant than the eternal fellowship we have because of the person and works of Jesus. Let me give you a positive example that we can follow instead. 2 a.m. last Saturday, 2 a.m. In, in the morning, there were three Christian couples sitting on my back porch still talking. They had been arguing for three hours, right? Now, here's the wild part. Everybody was having a great time. They were really enjoying each other. One guy had a political opinion that another guy completely disagreed about, and they were going back and forth and sharing thoughts and ideas. Another lady had a, a medical idea that somebody else had never even considered and thought was kind of concerned. There were other disagreements, other discussions, and, and everyone, get this, everyone respectfully shared their thoughts, and everyone listened attentively to each other. How can that happen in our fractured age? I'll tell you how. Because all of these six people share one big idea. They are committed to keeping Jesus, the light of the world, the main thing. Zig Ziglar was spot on. Zig said this, I don't care how much power, brilliance, or energy you have, if you don't harness it and focus it on a specific target and hold it there, you're never going to accomplish as much as your ability warrants. Close quote. If I want to trade cowardice for accomplishment, I've got to be like Peter and keep the focus on Jesus, even when I disagree. 13, go to verse 13. When they, the, the Sanhedrin, observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized they were uneducated and untrained men, that drives me crazy. Okay, I've got to tell you this. That just drives me crazy. They... They know that they're educated and trained. What this trying to do, the, the way Luke's writing this, he's letting you know how absolutely snotty these people are. Everyone in Galilee, including Peter and John, had a great education. They grew up through synagogue school. They were the only 100% literate society in the world, okay? Everyone at synagogue school. What happened is they didn't go to the accepted, what we would call college, the secondary level of education, Instead, they spent three years walking around with Jesus, which might be better. Um, they, they went into business, and then they were called out of business by Jesus. They didn't go to college. So this is a snotty anti-college comment, these college people. Anyway, um, they saw they were educated, untrained men. They were amazed and recognized they'd been with Jesus. And since they saw the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in opposition. After they ordered them to leave the Sanhedrin, they conferred among themselves, saying, what should we do with these men? For an obvious sign has been done through them, clear to everyone living in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that this does not spread any further among the people. Let's threaten them against speaking to anyone in this name again. Cancel culture. That's what this is. This is cancel culture. It's nothing new. Now, opposition should always be fought, but it never should be feared. Here's something I've noticed in history, okay? Soft totalitarianism, like many of you are experiencing today and like we see here in this text, it can't last very long. Soft totalitarianism has only one of two possibilities. Within a generation, it has to harden into law or it goes away. I know what you're thinking in your Zig Ziglar imitation. You're asking, why would that be? Thank you, Zig. Here's why. The inevitably, eventually, the snake that is cancel culture will bite the one who tries to use it on everybody else. It always, always does. That's why James Carville said what he said. May 2021, he's in an interview with Sean Illing of Vox. And James Carville from Louisiana, James Carville is just such a brilliant strategist, he said this. He said, wokeness is a problem and everybody knows it. It's hard to talk to anybody today, and I talk to lots of people in the Democratic Party who doesn't say this, but they don't want to say it out loud, all right? So knowing that giving in to cancel culture, knowing that being silenced by some woke power is absurd and that it will eventually collapse, Peter and John answer the Sanhedrin. Go to verse 18. 
So they called for them and ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than God, you decide. For we are unable to stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. After threatening them further, they released them. They found no way to punish them because the people were all giving glory to God over what had been done. Thoughtful honesty carries the day. It always does. They're thoughtful. You know, so they're, not, they're not brash. They're not pugnacious here. They say, you decide. They're pithy. No long speeches. They just frame things biblically and then let the chips fall where they may. And they were honest. We are unable to stop speaking. This is truth. We must speak it. Um, I, I, thoughtful honesty. I thought about them and Peter and John a few months ago when a, a lady in our church, Teresa Bailey, she, uh, she sent this note. I was the butt of a joke today regarding my faith in Christ Jesus. It wasn't the first time. Man, it's surely not going to be the last. All for the glory of God. That's it. It is pretty simple. If I want to replace my fear with power, I must practice thoughtful honesty. Friends, this is the beginning of our Frisco Bible Church annual vision. There are two more parts to study, love and discipline, but let's close by making sure we've got the big idea here. Here's the theme for our series, and thus the, the overarching theme for our entire year. We must fix our eyes on Jesus rather than losing sight of the mission among all of our many hindrances and snares. We can effectively do so with the, the simple reminders of 2 Timothy 1.7. There are just three of them. First, don't fear. Use your superpower. The one we'll get to next time, don't hate, keep loving. And thirdly, don't settle, press on. Amen? Of course, it's easier said than done. Here's why. Look at the premise for our series. It's not easy to follow Jesus in a fallen world. Distractions abound. Fears and hatreds loom large. Defeats dominate our thinking. In a word, churches and individual Christians appear intimidated. The church needs to remember and act on the truth that Jesus has commissioned us undaunted. We can and must press on with his mission for our lives. This is needed across the church. It's needed around the world. We need to embrace every opportunity to put aside and move past our distractions and our defeats. David Wade of our pulpit team wrote me a really excited note about this. Uh, he wrote and said, Wayne, it's perfect. He's just talking about things within this local body, uh, for those of you who are elsewhere. He said, it's perfect that Thomas Campbell is teaching Acts on Sunday morning, since Acts is full of examples remaining undaunted by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Thursday night men's Bible study is beginning a series on the establishment of the church. Jesus did indeed establish his church, and the gates of hell did not prevail against it, and he's still doing it. It'll be great this year to see so many ministries and individuals study, grow, and live undaunted. Amen? All right, let's close with our series objective. This is our goal. Read it with me, please. The objective altogether, that we remain undaunted ever on mission. Pray with me, please. Lord, help me become a daredevil, overcoming fear because of your superpower in me. Father, keep me ever on mission. Keep me making the main thing the main thing. Lord, I believe Help my unbelief. Motivate me in discipline so I respond with thoughtful honesty every day. In Jesus' name, amen.